Hello and welcome to the Weekly Skeptic, episode 59. I'm Nick Dixon here with birthday boy Toby Young. Coming up, why won't the FA acknowledge Israel? Steve Bell is fired by The Guardian for his cartoon. And Kevin Spacey joins Team Cancelled, plus loads more. And of course, peak woke. But Toby, we have to start with you. It's a very big, important birthday. I don't want to say which one necessarily, but it's one of the big ones. And uh, what have you been up to and how are you feeling? Yeah, it's the big 6-0. so less depressed about it than I was expecting to be. No more depressed, in fact, than I usually am in the run-up to a birthday. So that's a pleasant surprise. Um, but I actually had a pretty good time last night um, when I turned 60. So I went to the um, Douglas Murray-Roger Scruton Memorial Lecture in Oxford, and there was this wonderful coup de theatre at the end. Uh, one of the themes of Douglas's speech is that we have to stop cancelling you know, all our most talented, imaginative thoughtful people uh, and gave the example of Roger Scruton being cancelled towards the end of his life and talked about his campaign to uncancel Roger. Um, And he then said, uh, he then sort of segued to talking about Timon of Athens, which is really about um, a a ruler who was cancelled, left with no friends at all. Um, And there's a wonderful scene in which Timon of Athens describes what, what it's like to fall from such a large height and end up in the gutter, absolutely friendless. Um, and and then he ushered on Kevin Spacey to read the scene, which was obviously in keeping with the theme of uncancelling our most gifted and talented fellow creatures. And, um, and he did it marvellously and got a standing ovation. And then there was a dinner afterwards to which Kevin Spacey came. And then we all went on for drinks at this club called Vincent's, a private members club for kind of people who've got a blue for being particularly good in, uh, for representing Oxford at a particular sport, like rugby or cricket or football. Um, And um, we all got quite drunk. And I was talking to this um, younger woman um, and uh, at about, I don't know, sort of 1.30 a.m., she knocked over um, a pint and it shattered on the floor. And and, and uh, she looked at me pleadingly and say and said and whispered, say it was you, say it was you, say it was you. It's really embarrassing. So I kind of held my hand up and went, sorry, really loudly <laughs> to take to take to take the blame. And Douglas spotted this and broke into a rendition of happy birthday. And Kevin Spacey joined in. So um, not a bad birthday when uh, Kevin Spacey uh, sings happy birthday to you at 1.30 in the morning. Um, so, yeah, that, that was um, that was good. That was a good night. Wow. Amazing. Two cancelled middle-aged men singing to each other in the night. It's beautiful, really. Um, it's, it's the beginning I mean, of a beautiful love story. Yeah. And did Kevin know who you were and know your name? Didn't have a clue. Happy no. birthday, dear. <laughs> what is it again, Douglas? Toby, was it, was it kind of like that? <clears throat> it was kind of like that, yeah. I had actually introduced myself to him before, been introduced to him by Douglas and um, talked to him a bit about the Free Speech Union and said, you know, I know it's a little late, Kevin, but uh, if you want to join the Free Speech Union, we will do our best to defend you if um, anyone comes for you again. And we could perhaps help get your, you know, his, he, he had a premiere cancelled earlier this week. It was going to be at the Prince of Wales Prince Theatre. Charles Cinema. Prince, Prince Charles Cinema, that's right, in uh, in Leicester Square. And when they found out that Kevin Spacey was in the film, um, they cancelled it. And I said, we can perhaps get that you know, reinstated. And he said, no, no, not bothered. I found somewhere else to do it. It's fine. Uh, so <laughs> didn't want my help with anything. Um, but uh, it, it's surprising, actually. Decent um, impression, people, actually. When, when uh, yeah, everyone's saying that... Um, you know, about um, uh, what's his face, that he he deserves his day in court, Russell Brand, um, you know, innocent until proven guilty. But, you know, 
um, I think Kevin Kevin Spacey has now been in court numerous times and ha- has been acquitted on every occasion, and yet it hasn't managed to get him uncancelled. He's even been unsuccessfully sued in a civil court where the burden of proof, as you know, is not beyond reasonable doubt, but just the balance of probability. And even on the balance of probability, <clears throat> he wasn't found guilty. Uh, but nevertheless, you know, he 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 remains effectively cancelled. Perhaps let's hope um, that after his performance and standing ovation yesterday, um, he now becomes uncancelled. I think he is planning um, a production of um, Tyrant of Athens next year. So that's something to look forward to. Well, I have a slightly different take. I mean, firstly, on you smashing glasses, that's, that's you know, you, you, that's happened to me where you actually was you that did it and you ruined my new shoes that was very, very expensive. But we won't hold that against you. But I like that you nobly took that on for the, for the young lady. It sounds like a fun night. My take is a bit different, which is that um, Spacey now joins the ranks of the cancelled. And um, yeah, so just to recap what you said there, the Prince of Charles Cinema in Leicester Square, which I think I've been to it. I know it, I've, I've certainly walked past it many times. They were appalling because they, they said they were horrified they were meant to be mentioned in the same breath as his new film for the premiere. So they didn't realise the film had Kevin Spacey in it. As soon as they did, they cancelled it. And you just go, what about rule of law? What, what society is this? I mean, what an ordeal. It's, it's been going on for about six years, this Kevin Space thing, from when it first broke. And as you say, completely exonerated. And yet it doesn't matter. This guy, Greg Lynn, who runs the cinema, was contacted by The Telegraph. And he said, there is no story here. I'm like, there is a story here, Greg Lynn. And it's you can't just cancel someone who's, who's completely exonerated. But this is... You got in a lot of trouble, Toby, when we did our piece on Russell Brand and... We got a few bad reviews. People say, "Well, what is Toby's standard? It's not due process. It's just that he what he thinks the evidence is convincing. How can that be the standard?" And so I don't know what standard you'd apply here, but it's sort of similar. Well, it's, it is different because he's been through the trial and and he's and he's been exonerated, which is a bit different from no trial has happened or anything. So that's just, it is a different situation. But we do yeah. have to go by the rule of law, much like with Mason Greenwood when people say he shouldn't get to play football again. I'm like, but there's no charges. We we can't live like that. Or, or is it just a case of people just get to decide for themselves? Prince Charles is a private venue, blah, 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 whatever, independent business, whatever. Yeah. Um, well, I, I think that um, yeah, the evidence that Kevin Spacey committed the crimes he's been accused of is, is very threadbare, uh, which is why, you know, the case against him didn't even succeed in a civil court. Um, uh, whereas I think the admittedly not legal but evidence, nonetheless, against Russell Brown is Brand is a lot more persuasive. But you know, I, I, I am beginning to um, slightly doubt uh, my own position there. I think perhaps it was um, too nuanced, and maybe you're right. Maybe maybe the standard should just be: unless you're found guilty in a court of law, you should be presumed to be innocent and not found guilty in the court of public opinion. Um, ah, interesting. And I'm ho- hoping some of those one-star reviews will be changed to five-star now, guys. He's admitted. Yeah. He, he's admitted fault. We've worn him down. Um, Sorry, carry on. Yeah, no, but uh, yeah, I, I talked to Douglas about this and you're right, rather than try and uncancel people so they can join the ranks of the uncancelled again, why not just, you know, celebrate the fact that the ranks of the cancelled are now far more illustrious than the ranks of the uncancelled. Um, soon, you know, um, people will want to be cancelled because being uncancelled will be so embarrassing because the few bland, anodyne, woke people left in that ever-shrinking group will just be so unattractive yeah that's what i'm hoping that we get our own cons- our own conservative hollywood because you think about it now 
We've got Kevin Spacey. What was what was really notable to me? I mean, he did a brilliant piece. I, not really a monologue because it was more like an a, adaptation of it was seen uh, scene four act three or the other way around uh, of of Time and of Athens, and he'd taken bits and, and put it together as a monologue, and it was so powerful and brilliantly acted. So he hasn't lost any of his acting chops, and um, it did make me think the fact that Douglas Murray introduced him and said, I, "I'm proud to call him my friend," and he hugged Murray at the end. I'm like. Kevin Spacey is prepared to publicly associate with Douglas Murray, which is a big thing because in Hollywood, remember, they had that thing, the Friends of Abe, which was a secret group where you were a conservative in Hollywood. And it was people like Jeremy Boring and, and Gary Sinise and all these people. And it ran for years. And I've always thought it's so absurd that you had to have a secret group to admit you were a conservative. There's something so appalling about that. So the point is, though, now with people like Kevin Spacey coming out on the cancelled side, if more and more people did it, we could eventually have our own conservative Hollywood. Think about it. We've already got the producer, Harvey Weinstein. <laughs> we've <already> got <laughs> Kevin Spacey starring. You know, R. Kelly can do the soundtrack. All right, maybe not. I mean, it's, it's who would you want is the thing because some people are legitimately kind of, you know, we want to distance ourselves. We wouldn't really want Weinstein, no. but we would want Spacey probably. <laughs> but some conservatives have been saying, it's embarrassing. Why was Spacey at the Scruton event? You know, last year it was Peter Hitchens. What's this got to do with conservatism? I mean, I'm I'm not on that side. But what did you think of that take? Yeah, well, it seemed well because um, Douglas's speech was partly about um, his efforts to uncancel Roger Scruton. It seemed very fitting um, and appropriate to have Kevin Spacey come on and and read this, actually perform this this very powerful scene about someone who'd effectively been cancelled. Um, uh, so um, it didn't seem remotely inappropriate um and you know it, it, the standing ovation wasn't forced i mean admittedly I, I was one of the first on my feet but soon the rest of the room followed um and it seemed like uh, it, 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 i think what what douglas wanted was a kind of moment of absolution in which um spacey was publicly f- sort of rehabilitated and it did feel like that it felt like a very dramatic moment um and he hadn't told n- anyone about it i mean even james Orr, who is in charge of the Scruton Memorial Lectures that you interviewed on The Current Thing the other day. Even he didn't know about it. Um, so it was wow. an absolute surprise to everyone in the room, bar two or three people. Yeah, I saw James in the front because he's got that unmistakable blonde hair. But yeah, it, and he is associated with, the, as he said, with the Scruton Foundation. But it's, yeah, I just think it's we're at such a shocking stage where people just go, no, he's been, he's been found not guilty, doesn't matter. If it doesn't matter, then that is it, isn't it? Then it's just accusations destroy your life that's it and that's absolutely unworkable as a society cannot work i just say today toby young robbed the bank and that's that's it now you just did and and it doesn't matter that every court proves you didn't i mean that's insane that's that's dystopia it is insane i mean you know we can argue about um whether someone uh deserves to suffer any negative repercussions if um they are accused of a sex crime um, uh, without having gone on trial for it. Um, and But it's unarguable that if you do go on trial and you're acquitted, then you know you should be able to resume your life and suffer no negative repercussions at all. Yeah. All right. That's Spacey. We could definitely... I think he could do a new film. R. Kelly's soundtrack. I believe I can fly. And it's, it's Spacey, the Kevin Spacey story. Um, not, <laughs> it's not a great idea. I've got to keep remembering that R. Kelly, he was proved guilty. <laughs> It's a key difference, so I'm not saying I'm not seriously suggesting he would be involved. But I, I actually am a bit like Time of Athens, Toby, in that um, I have no friends, 
and have been cast out from the world. It just, it just struck me the difference between your birthday with Kevin Spacey there and Douglas Murray and a big celebration. My last major birthday was at a Pizza Express with three people. And then the year after, I went back to the same Pizza Express with one person who just spent the whole time complaining that another mutual friend was being mean to him and then later cried. And I'm like, why is this my life? Why do I have no friends? It's just terrible, isn't it? I guess I don't really like social events like you. You, you sort of like it, don't you? I do like it. I'm quite naturally gregarious, unlike you. Yeah, I think I can be. I just need a lot of time by myself. What about this other related story um, of the Daily Wire launching Bent Key, which is just related in my mind because it's about, you know, the, the sort of alternative to Hollywood, in this case, the alternative to Disney. So they had Daily Wire Kids, which is obviously their kids' brands, but they've changed the name because they said that was too political. Jeremy Boring, in, a, in an announcement, said, we don't want it to be politics at all. We want it to just be about values that shape kids' values and politics comes later. So they don't even want it to be Daily Wire. They want it to be Bent Key. I've yet to find out what the significance of Bent Key is. I've been trying to find out today and I can't. But it does sound kind of like Disney. It's like they're trying to be the new Disney. They're saying, look, well, obviously we're not there yet. It's going to be a long haul. But that's what they're trying to do. And they've launched a new Snow White with Brett Cooper as Snow White. Some people at the on X were laughing about this, the idea that they just wanted to do a white Snow White just to hit back at the the sort of woke Snow White. Any do take you, on all this? Yeah, you, I mean, they evidently don't know the English idiomatic definition of the word bent because mm. that sounds much more ominous than just calling it, you know, Daily Wire Kids. It almost sounds like bent kids, doesn't it? Um, but do you, think, yeah. do you think the Ben in bent key could be a reference to Ben Shapiro? It could be. Some people have said it's the key round Jeremy Boring's neck that he wears. So I'm not sure. Yeah, Ben, it's not going to translate that well to the UK, is it? No. Maybe that's a niche there for us to do our own non-bent alternative <laughs> kids channel, straight key, and then they have to buy it back off us. Like, <laughs> Are they planning to release their non-PC version of Snow White at the same time as Disney releases its woke version. They are releasing it 2024, so maybe, yeah. Mm. Probably is similar timing, isn't it? Imagine if it actually beat it at the box office. That would be incredible, wouldn't it? The trailer was quite cool. Uh, Brett Cooper was singing. She's clearly got a good voice. I'm not sure if she looked quite right for the part, but they are limited with their with their options because, they, you know, there's not that many people. Is it? It's just her and Gina Carano. But yeah. you, could, you could, I mean, you could you get some pretty good talent with this. Just back on my conservative Hollywood idea, Vincent Gallo, he was in a Daily Wire film. He's a brilliant actor. You've got Gary Sinise. You've got Jim Caviezel, yep. Kevin Spacey now. It's actually building, isn't it? There's some pretty big hits. And as I've said perhaps on previous episodes, the hero's journey is an inherently conservative concept. We're really missing out here. You know, films, the ones that are really good are inherently conservative. I mean, look at Warrior. It's about family. It's about the struggle of masculinity. It's one of the great films. Look at any Clint Eastwood film, really. And they, you know, there's about they're about sort of a man suffering and then coming through it. And I don't know. The, the, I just well, think great films are inherently conservative in many cases. I think I think Dirty Harry was explicitly conservative, really, wasn't it? I mean, uh, the theme of all of the Dirty Harry films, but particularly of Dirty Harry, is that you know, uh, law and order is breaking down. Corrupt politicians and bureaucrats won't let the police enforce the law, so you need this kind of one man, almost vigilante cop to deal with the bad guys. I mean, that's a pretty, you know, a pretty conservative vision right there. Yeah, Eastwood does go for explicitly conservative, but you're right. But I think I think the hero's journey is implicitly conservative as well. And this is how we win. Anyway, just my little thoughts on that. Very interesting to see how this spacey thing develops. Do you want to get on to Israel? We have to cover it yeah. again. The, the ongoing 
madness. And it's really the response to it that we're covering rather than the actual conflict. And, and one of the big things was the Wembley Arch. The FA refused to light the Wembley Arch in the colours of the Israel flag. And many people pointed out, well, you did it for Ukraine. You've done it for all these other causes. Why not for Israel? And it, it, it was a strange choice. And then it turned out on a, a follow-up story that one of the directors, Deji Davis, the chairman of the FA's Inclusion Advisory Board, had posted in 2013 on Twitter that the European Under-21 Championship shouldn't be held in the state in Israel at all. And he'd, used, he'd claimed they, were, they had racist policies. He'd used the phrase ethnic cleansing. And he'd gone in pretty hard on Israel, basically. And it was pretty unambiguous where he stood. Now, he does claim that his views have evolved since 2013, and that is okay. I mean, look, Twitter archaeology is generally, generally bad, and of course, people's views evolved in 10 years. So that, there is that. Then again, and he's saying now, my current views on the situation are clear. The barbaric acts of Hamas last weekend were horrific and resulted in the loss of many innocent victims, blah, blah, blah. But he, okay, so he said that now, but this, at the same time, the result was the, the light still didn't go up, and he was on the board. So you still have questions. Yeah, I mean, it's um, is your view that um, the Wembley Arch should be lit up in the colours of the Israeli flag to commemorate what happened, to memorialise what happened, to yes. express sympathy? Uh, or do you think that actually these big sporting arenas, the FA, all the rest should just stay out of politics and just have a blanket ban on all... Um, expressions of support for victims of tragedies, natural disasters, slaughters, etc. Well, I think that's what they should have done, but now it's too late. So my take is these are the rules you established. Now we've got to play by them. So much like Gary Lineker's compared Suella Bravman's language to 1930s Germany, but couldn't compare the actual murder of Jews to anything, suddenly went silent on that. So, and then Jonathan Pye was like, oh, the people have been complaining about Gary Lineker's giving his opinions and now want his opinions. It's like, yes, Jonathan Pye, because... Those are the rules you've established. And so the fact that you now don't say anything is suspicious. Even the fact that my football group, WhatsApp group, were going on about Gary Lineker, you know, when that happened. And I was being told in the football group that the Tory government are far right. I say I was being told. I just stayed silent while people claim the government were far right and all these absurd things. Then they don't mention Israel at all. And you go, well, Nick, why would a five-a-side football group be mentioning Israel? Well, no, ideally it wouldn't. But once they've gone on about the Tory government being far right, why? it's kind of notable the, 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 what causes the, the trendy professional managerial class don't mention. So much like the Israel, if you're going to light up Wembley and then you don't, of course, it's a virtue signaling gesture anyway. It's good to stay out of politics, as you say, but you've started it. And yeah. they backed BLM and it's still on their website, them saying they support taking the knee, blah, blah, blah. They claim to be apolitical, but they supported BLM, who any fool could see were not apolitical, were an extremist organization, who now, by the way, reveal themselves to be very anti-Israel. One of the founders wants Israel eradicated. They all, various chapters of BLM posted the parachute Palestinian thing just after the attacks. So you prepare to support BLM, which hates Israel, and you prepare to support rainbow laces, which is a political statement, but you're not prepared to support Israel. So they've set the precedent. Yeah, I agree. Um, it is um, ludicrously inconsistent. I mean, to, to mark the death of one African-American man um, who had a criminal record, um, including assault and battery, um, and was a drug addict. And possibly had and a yet, drug overdose. And maybe that contributed to his death. Um, 
to, 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 to go to the enormous lengths that the FA went to, to uh, make everyone aware that, that they, they were shocked and appalled by this incident. Uh, even Sky News had the BLM insignia, um, Sky Sport, I think, in its sort of backdrop for ages. Um, and they were all allowed to wear BLM insignia on shirts. I think they were, they were forced to. Um, you know, it was almost mandatory. Uh, it may have even been mandatory. Um, uh, uh, all of that for the death of one man. And yet the death of over 1,300 Israelis doesn't get, you know, doesn't get noticed. Uh, one of the one of the um, excuses wheeled out was, well, it, it might upset some members of our community. You know, think, oh, what? So if you um, express your horror at the racist murder of 1300 Jews um, that might upset some racists in your community. I mean, they don't, they don't, they don't give the same due deference to homophobes when thinking about celebrating pride or, you know, trans football fan, uh, pe- people who aren't particularly sympathetic to trans when they commemorate the trans day of remembrance. I mean, it's, it is absolutely ludicrous. And yeah, Gary Lineker. Um, yeah. Has he said anything yet? Has he simply remained completely silent, or has he? Has he? It's has hard he done for a bit me to know, Toby. Well? It's hard for me to know because yeah. he finally blocked me. He blocked you. Okay. I say finally. I didn't even comment on him. I didn't say anything. And I was. I put out a, a post saying, you know, how will I learn now which things are like 1930s Germany, trying to have a workable immigration policy, and which things aren't even worth mentioning? Actual murder of Jews. Jews. I mean, how am I going to know without Gary's insights? So yeah, he hadn't commented at the time that he blocked me anyway. And just by the way, on that FA thing. They explicitly listen to their statement before this that I found on their website. We'll continue to stand firm against all types of discrimination, just as we specifically promote campaigns like Rainbow Laces to support the LGBTQ community. Is that not, that's, a, you know, they're saying that's political. We are supporting Black Lives Matter. To support the message, a Black Lives Matter logo has appeared on shirts in both the Premier League and the Emirates FA Cup, along with a badge thanking the NHS for their work during the COVID-19 crisis. In addition, we will continue to support players who take a knee before or during matches. So what is that if not explicitly backing a political campaign? And it's like, oh, no, we don't. And it's just, you know, this, and then they put out some lame both sides statements. So, yeah, it's... it's I think it's, I think, I think in, in, in their heads, um, they maintain this impossible to defend distinction between political and apolitical causes. And I think they think of the anti-racism cause symbolised by the BLM badge and taking the knee is politically uncontentious. It's not contested in any way. It's now beyond politics. It's settled. We are, as a society, united in our opposition to racism and agreed that this is the way we signify our solidarity with the victims of racism. Uh, but they think of of, of, of um, noticing the slaughter of 1,300 plus Jews by a terrorist organisation would be politically contentious. That is not in their heads outside the realm of the politically contested. So they don't think they should go there because that's political. Yeah, what an insane standard. And it was it was similar to the it was all part of the gaslighting, wasn't it, of, of the Premier League regarding Black Lives Matter as well. We, we they started off with the logo. The logo remained emblazoned on the advertising hoardings, on the screen, on shirts. Maybe at one point it was just everywhere, and it was BLM. And then as it got more controversial, the commentators started saying, "No, oh, a general 
gesture of anti-racism, of course, here. But they kind of like kept toning it down and saying, oh, no, it's just a general gesture of anti-racism. And the players think it's that. Yeah, but it's not, is it? Because you're using that logo and we all know what it is. And that's how it started. We all know why it started and at what point it started. It's, it was started after George Floyd by a radical organization that basically hates the West, hates the family, hates Israel. So it's it, they just gaslit us into saying it was general racism. And, but of course it wasn't. That's why everyone had a problem with it. And they never had a problem with kick out racism and all these other campaigns, mm-hmm. whatever they were called. Yeah, absurd. Do you think this guy should be sacked, though, this this Davis character who wrote these things 10 years ago? No. Um, uh, I think there should be a statute of limitations on what um, offence archaeologists can bring up and throw at you of one year. Um, that's one of the things the Free Speech Union is lobbying for. You want to change to the Employment Act to make it illegal, unlawful, to punish anyone for an employer to punish any employees for a speech crime that they've committed more than 12 months ago. Just as there's a 12-month statute of limitations on libel, so there should be two on offence archaeology, I think. Yeah. I'm just th- th- I'm just trying to see what else he said. But yeah, I, I mean, I, I do agree that you you can't really be in trouble for things you said 10 years ago. The only strange thing is he, he's on the board. They decided not to light up Wembley. Was he part of that decision? One has to question it. What about this other story? Pro-Palestine group splattered BBC studios with red paint and accused broadcasts of supporting Israel apartheid. So suddenly the BBC was splattered with red paint and Palestine Action claimed responsibility, saying they talked about the BBC spreading the occupation's lies and manufacturing consent, Chomsky phrase there, for Israel's war crimes means that you have Palestinian blood on your hands. Hashtag shut BBC down. Okay, the last bit, they've got a point. But, um, you know, <laughs> for different reasons. And weirdly, the Met Police said at this stage, there's no suggestion this is linked to any protest group, despite the fact that they had taken responsibility for it. So I find that a bit strange. What's notable is that the BBC have been in trouble for refusing to call Hamas a terrorist organization, which is a, a terrible stance. And as Michael Deacon has pointed out in the Telegraph today, that is taking a side, whether you like it or not. And Nick Robertson called it the long-standing practice of the BBC. I'm like, it's not the best defense, Nick, because there's quite a few things that are long-standing practice at the BBC that are not necessarily good. We could we could name a few, perhaps. But um, yeah, anyway, exactly. What are you going to say? Well, the, the 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 BBC commissioned an investigation into its own historic anti-Semitism, the Balin Report, um, and it has spent hundreds of thousands of pounds. Um, legally obstructing any efforts to force the BBC to publish it, even though the taxpayers funded it. Um, uh, so there must be quite a lot in there that, um, you know, quite a lot of that long-standing tradition Nick Robinson is inadvertently referring to there that the BBC doesn't want to uh, own up to. Um, but yeah, of course it's taking sides because, um, uh, you know, you're taking the side of people who don't think Hamas are terrorists, um, uh, which is you know, one side in this conflict. Um, it yeah. is ridiculous. And as many people have pointed out, they, they haven't had any hesitation in calling other terrorist groups terrorists. So they don't have a long-standing practice of not using the word terrorist. Um, and um, uh, the attack you know, then suggested that BBC still weren't, weren't you know, pro-Palestine enough. That's the insane thing. And that's why they were throwing red paint on them. Yeah, that's uh, that's um, that's extraordinarily helpful to the BBC, isn't it? Um, you know, they had a protest the following day by um, a, a much much smaller protest um, by Jewish groups, and they stood outside the BBC and um, prayed and 
chanted a few things, um, complaining about the BBC's anti-Israeli bias um, and history of anti-Semitism. Um, but uh, yeah, for the for the pro-Palestinian side to also accuse the BBC of bias now enables the BBC to tell itself, well, they're in the right place with both sides accusing us of being biased to the other. Yeah, I guess they could, can do that. Yeah, it's been pretty shocking from the BBC. I mean, it is hard to get it right, but they've got it very badly wrong. I think uh, oh, and on one this... last thing on that, Nick. Um, oh, yeah. I think the excuse trotted out, was it by Nick Robinson or was it by another Today presenter, uh, which is that um, Ofcom rules prevent us from calling Hamas terrorists. And Ofcom have, you know, have said, no, that's nonsense, that there's no such rule, which is how come you've used the word before. Right. You're speaking of Ofcom. The other story I wanted to cover was this Ofcom director suspended for hating Israel, essentially. And this was shocking. This is one of these cases where you go, why was this person hired in the first place? I'm just going to see if I can load the story. Oh, my, my internet's not working. This person's called Zadzai something. Mad Zingjira. Mad Zingjira. I've got no idea how to pronounce that. I'm sorry. But this person was hired even though she had described herself as a, a student of decolonization, a black feminist and student of decolonization, was then hired for this important role at Ofcom, but it turned out she was so anti-Israel, they've now suspended her, and this was reported on by Guido Fawkes. She, she'd used phrase like, shame on this vile colonial alliance. She said, as if it wasn't bad enough already, the UK is also set to participate in the ethnic cleansing and genocide of Palestinians, shame on this vile colonial alliance. And then she actually did get she actually did get suspended. Did you follow this one, Toby? I did, yeah. Um, I mean, the... the um... The really alarming thing is that this woman was the director of online safety, so presumably would have had a big role um, in um, uh, forcing uh, social media sites like Twitter and Facebook and Instagram to comply with the Online Safety Law Act. Um, so, yeah, that, that absolutely horrifying that she should be, you know, um, effectively a woke activist. You know, um, how is Ofcom going to maintain any kind of... Um, uh, uh, reputation for impartiality uh, when it comes to policing social media for hate speech um, or disinformation. If they employ people like this to be in charge of that particular job, I mean, it's just, it's shocking, but a real eye opener. Yeah, it's one of these where you go, how are the Tories missing this stuff again? How are they just letting these people, if someone says they're a student of decolonization, that means they want to wipe out the West and destroy your entire way of life. And as we saw recently, everyone's saying, what do you think decolonization, decolonization meant, guys? It also now means rape and murder. So just FYI. And that's the kind of thing. How, how did she even get into that position? But at least she's been suspended. But the other thing that annoys me about that is that it takes this to sus suspend someone. I mean, of course, it's awful to be sort of anti-Jewish and just, you know, in this, in this sort of flagrant way or anti-Israel. But it's, you know, it's very kind of linked, isn't it? I'm not saying... Let's not say she's anti-Jewish in case that's a legal issue, but I did. she was anti-Israel. And so, okay, it's good that they suspend her for that, probably. But but, but why does it take this to, to do anything? This is one theme that's been annoying me a little bit, that why does it take this to actually make a difference? And maybe on that note, I could bring up our other story on this, which is that uh, Penn, UPenn, had their funding removed by this guy, John Huntsman, who was a major funder to University of Pennsylvania, sort of private university in America. And this guy removed funding because of their stance on Hamas and what he called their moral relativism. 
and said that the, the university had become unrecognizable. And this is a huge deal because they're going to lose so much money. The next day, the woman in charge of this sent out her own letter, Liz McGill. So amidst, amidst, calls for her resi- amidst calls for her resignation, a new statement from Penn President Liz McGill. So she came out and condemned Hamas then in a letter the following day. So obviously what happened was this guy pulled a massive amount of money. They said, what have you done? Why didn't we condemn Hamas? Then she comes out and goes, by the way, I'm condemning Hamas, but it's too late because the money's gone. But the, 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 reason, the reason it's thematically linked in my head is this point that Melissa Chen made on X. She said, billionaire sends email on Saturday saying no more funding. Penn capitulates on Sunday. So this whole time, the billionaire class had the power to abruptly change university policies and didn't think to do so when free speech was under assault, when CRT ate the humanities. And this is a great question. It's similar to the idea that we should deport people for supporting Hamas openly and having Hamas flags on the streets of London. Well, yes, we should, but why couldn't we deport all kinds of other, you know, extremist terrorists? So th- here's what bothers me about it. It's good that we're doing these things now and recognizing, yeah, you should take your funding away for that and you should try and deport people. But yeah, why have we not been able to do it for any other cause? Why has it taken flagrant anti-Semitism to do it? Um, well, just on the deportation question, um, you're not suggesting that anyone who joins in a pro-Palestinian protest should be deported. It's just what people who are um, uh, undocumented migrants um, and who um, uh, celebrate, glorify the actions of Hamas who should be deported. I, mean, I don't know about their documented status. If they have a Hamas flag and they're celebrating Hamas, they're, they're celebrating a prescri- prescribed terrorist organization that wants to kill us all. Those people can go. Yeah, not the Palestine people, the well, Hamas people. It's quite hard to deport them if they're British citizens. Um, I know it's hard to do it. I'm not saying it's easy. I, I was, saying, saying, this is I was I arguing with Douglas Murray about this yesterday. He, 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 like you, takes a very hard line on this. I, as a free speech advocate, take a a less hard line. And one of the arguments I made to him was, well, let's suppose Jeremy Corbyn won the general election in 2019 and Britain was now offering all kinds of support um, to Hamas um, uh, uh, in Gaza. Um, We'd want to enjoy the right to go out on the streets and protest about that. Um, And by the same extension, if you are pro-Palestinian, even though we think you're misguided in this particular matter, um, you should be entitled to protest against the forthcoming Israeli invasion of Gaza. But, but hang on, is, how is that similar? We would be pro. So, what does Corbyn do? Corbyn says, "What Hamas are my mates, and we're having a pro-Hamas demonstration." No, and Corbyn. Then we Cor- no, that. the the Corbyn government expresses its outright support for Hamas and mm-hmm. funnels aid, maybe even gives some weapons to Hamas uh, in this particular conflict. In that circumstance, we would want the right to organise a protest and protest about it. Yeah, but that's very different because we're not supporting a terrorist organisation. We're protesting against the support of one by a communist coup that's basically taken place on our government in that scenario. <laughs> well, we're, not, we're still not supporting terrorism, are we? We're protesting our government supporting terrorism. It's quite different. Well, it could be that one of the things Jeremy Corbyn's government has done is designate Israel a terrorist state. I see. And so all Israelis yeah. are ipso facto terrorists. So if you support Israel um, on a protest, then you are in breach of the Anti-Terrorism Act and you could be, well, not deported perhaps, but jailed for two years. Yeah. 
It's an interesting question, but you're being actually too relativistic about it. So I've become a bit more hardline about this, but it is a paradox. The paradox is we have to we have to defend Western liberal democracy in a fairly hardline way, and and, and obviously that's tricky because if you're if you're Xi in China, you just go yeah Xi's way or the highway. That that's it. That's what we believe in and done, and that's it. But it's harder to do when you're a liberal democracy. How do you enforce a liberal democracy? But I think we have to get much tougher about enforcing our values, whether it is civil liberties, free speech. Obviously, that, that gets complicated. How do you enforce free speech? It's kind of like the idea that the government should regulate universities to make sure they enforce free speech. It does sound ostensibly like an oxymoron, but that's what you have to do. So I think we do have to get tough with saying, who are the enemies of the West? Well, Hamas are one of the enemies of the West. ISIS are an enemy of the West. So if, you're, if you have one of these um, Islamist hate preachers and you're saying death to the West, maybe you should get out of our country. If you support Hamas, maybe the same. And you're sort of being free speech absolutists about it. I'm leaning more towards we have to actually defend our values now, especially the way the world's going with so many enemies within our own countries who want to destroy us. Surely we have to aggressively defend our values rather than pretend that our values are just a free-for-all, moral relativism, free speech-for-all. It's not quite what our values are. Well, I'm not a... I'm not a free speech absolutist on this particular question. I do think um, there are some forms of protest um, that should be um, prohibited. So um, I think, for instance, the two young women who had pictures of paragliders attached to their jackets on that big protest uh, last weekend, I think they should be at the very least fined. I don't think they should be deported. I don't think they should go to jail, but I think they should have to pay a fine uh, for seemingly being in breach of the Anti-Terrorism Act. Um, and I, you know, open expressions of support for Hamas um, on our streets um, should not be permitted. Um, but I don't think people who do openly express their support for Hamas should be deported, particularly if they're British citizens. And I think one argument what for... What should happen to them? Well, I, I think they should have to pay a fine. Mm. Um, but but what, one argument for, for, for not making it kind of... Um, for not punishing people who openly support Hamas more severely, i.e. by deporting them, is isn't it quite helpful in some ways um, to, to know who they are and what they believe? You know, um, you can't really do much to suppress bigotry and hatred. Um, uh, so there's not much point um, in, in energetically trying to suppress it. You're not actually going to reduce it by suppressing it. All you're going to be doing is kind of hiding it, disguising it. And isn't it actually quite helpful sometimes to know who the bigots are and where they are and what they really believe? Well, yeah, in terms of who they are, there's all these senior figures in Hamas who live in the country, absurdly. Uh, I got that from Douglas Murray. Yeah, look, it's tricky, but I see your point, but it's not It's not a question of hate or you know bigotry or anything like that. We, we shouldn't deport all homophobes or perhaps even people who hate straight white men, which seems to be a lot of people. But but we do have to tackle potentially violent enemies of the West and of our country. I don't think that's controversial. You know, this is where we're at now. We have all these people we've brought in who hate the country. If you want to decolonize, you want to, you want to, you know, you're saying that it's okay to rape and murder because someone's Jewish or because they're Western or whatever it is, because they're white, perhaps, or we're next in, whatever it is. I just think we can't accept that and we should have the harshest possible punishment. It's, it's not really a free speech debate. It's a security debate, isn't it, at that point? The, the, the battle is on two fronts. I don't have my views all completely lined up fully, but that, I do tend towards the Douglas Murray view on this. 
because the battle is on two fronts. Really. It's the academic battle against ideas like decolonization, and we need to fight back against that as people like Doug Stokes are. If you listen to my current thing podcast with him, he had the book Against Decolonization, very good book. We need to fight against those ideas intellectually. And the other thing is the people on the street, the ones saying gas the Jews, whatever they're saying, they're the people who are actually physically dangerous. So it's about pushing back against both. You push back against the ideas with ideas, but the violent people who are not open to reason, who don't have, who are not, you know, they, they're not like, oh, let's have a debate. They're like, I want to kill you. And I have a sort of fairly primitive understanding of the world. But those people just have to go. What else? Are you, find them is not going to do anything, is it? I mean, it'll do time. Well, I, out, I, you... I worry that, um, you know, if a government of a different color gets elected and we've established that precedent, then those powers could be used against us if we object to what that government's doing. Um, but yeah. but uh, couldn't, just... that would happen anyway, wouldn't it? If a Corbyn type communist yeah. government got in, that would be essentially we'll, a coup on the West anyway. But at least we'll be able to oppose oppose them on principle rather than just saying, well, on this occasion, we think people should be allowed to protest because we happen to agree with what they're protesting about. Um, but I, I, I think you're, I mean, I think the um, on, coloni- on colonization, decolonization, I think this is an opportunity to push back against the um, institutional uh, push behind the decolonization agenda. I mean, it isn't just universities, it's museums, it's galleries, it's the BBC. Everything seemingly um, has been infected by colonialism and needs to be uh, cleansed of that particular sin. Um, I think we can push back, particularly in universities now, and say it's really inappropriate for you as an institution to endorse this decolonizing agenda, given that some of its leading exponents have have claimed that an example of what they mean by decolonization, the values they're promoting by using that word, was the genocidal slaughter of over 1,300 Jews in Israel. Um, So if you continue to promote this toxic, hateful agenda, um, you're going to make one particular beleaguered minority on your campus, i.e. Jews, feel very uncomfortable. You have a duty under the Equality Act to ensure that all people with protected characteristics get along, don't feel threatened or harassed. So you therefore have a duty to stop promoting decolonization, given that we now know what it stands for. We don't object to you teaching, you know, teaching about it in post-colonial studies. Um, we're not going to say de- departments cannot teach about colon- colonization, um, uh, but you as an institution have to be neutral on this particular question. You have to stop promoting it because promoting it is going to make one particular minority on your campus and you came to care about minorities particularly beleaguered historically disadvantaged minorities it makes them feel very uncomfortable so you should stop promoting it. i think there's a real opportunity to do that now absolutely because it was a real mask off moment for the left wasn't it this that, about what decolonization really meant and they told us they said what did you think it means this is what it means so yeah the, the support of it in all western universities people like harvard were particularly bad weren't they there was this letter where they all sort of supported her mass yeah all these kind of chapters of harvard i need to get the exact details on that but it was it, it was very it was shocking stuff and we've and that's why upenn have lost their funding for similar reasons so yeah it really does expose what these ideas are all about and it is a chance as you say to to win a a, a big victory there did, did, did and, you see did you see the um the letter um that a bunch of people have signed i think they were attendees of the um of a, a, a literary festival in Palestine, the Palestine Literary Festival. Um, and uh, they um, they signed, uh, let's have a look if I can just find it. 
Um, yeah, here we go. It was in the uh, and it was sorry, it was in the it was in the New York Review of Books, an open letter from participants in the Palestine Festival of Literature, and the first name on there is. Ty Nahisi Coates, needless to say, um, and uh, one of the these the, one of the things they 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 say something absolutely appalling. They say this is this is the only reference made to what happened the Saturday before last. On Saturday, after sixteen years of siege, Hamas militants broke out of Gaza. Full stop. More than thirteen hundred Israelis were subsequently killed, with over one hundred more taken hostage. Uh, that's all it says. It makes no reference to the fact that um, Hamas actually killed those 1,300 Israelis, and it describes the terrorists as militants. It is just extraordinary um, uh, how they can be so morally blind, um, twisted. Um, one note about Hamas and the reluctance to call them what they are. You see a lot of people pushed back when the news... Uh, began to leak out that Hamas had murdered, what, 40 babies in one particular kibbutz. Um, it was described as atrocity propaganda. People compared it to the what we now know to be false stories about babies in incubators dying uh, when Iraq invaded Kuwait and supposedly shut down the, turned off the incubators in, in a pediatric ward. Um, uh, but presumably one of the reasons they were denying that and describing it as atrocity propaganda is because they couldn't bring themselves to believe that Hamas could be quite so bestial and evil. Um, and now we know that actually it's true. I mean, the Israelis had were reduced to having to release a picture of one of the babies um, to the press. You know, it's extraordinary how how high journalist standards are when it comes to proving the atrocities of the enemies of Israel was, you know, when Israel is accused of killing Palestinian children, it's enough to take, you know, Hamas's press office's word for it. Um, but, uh, you know, I want to say to those people who were kind of denying that and saying, no, you're just inventing this to kind of uh, paint Hamas as blacker than they really are. So well, now you know it's true. Will you now acknowledge that they are, in fact, the epitome of evil and are, in fact, terrorists? It just, it's, as you can tell, gets me quite worked yeah. up. No, it should do. And I even I, I also thought it was absurd that we were even arguing. I mean, of course, it's important to get the facts right. But people go, oh, it turns out they didn't. It was actually 30 babies or it wasn't babies. They just or, or they, or they raped didn't, and killed women. They didn't so, head all of them, only some of them. Yeah, yeah exactly. That's a pretty so, like, weak why are we excuse, even in isn't that? it? Yeah, it's <laughs> disgusting. Why are we even in that debate? So, yeah, we, we Hamas are evil and they do that kind of thing. It's not a win to say, oh, that was slightly exaggerated. Um this, I found this Harvard thing. It was a joint statement by Harvard-Palestine solidarity groups on the situation in Palestine. And it was this weirdly sort of semi-pro-Hamas thing. And it was signed by all these different groups within Harvard, basically, like the African-American Resistance Organization and Amnesty International at Harvard. There's a whole list of them, something like 36, I think I heard. So that was Harvard's response. And Many, and people pointed out they suddenly became free speech warriors. So Harvard president Claudine Gay said, our university embraces a commitment to free expression. That commitment extends even to views that many of us find objectionable, even outrageous. We do not punish or sanction people for expressing such views. And people were like, um, not how you treat your conservatives on campus. You know what I mean? They suddenly became pro-free speech when they yeah. wanted to defend Hamas. It's yeah. like, oh, really? That's the hill you're dying on. Now you're free speech warrior. Yeah, it's extraordinary, isn't it? No, and someone put, I think there was a Twitter note beneath that tweet from the president of Harvard about their unfaltering commitment to free speech, saying that in a recent survey, 
of how robustly defended free speech is at American universities. Harvard were joint rock bottom. Yeah. Yeah, I did hear that as well. Amazing. So, yeah, they suddenly care about free speech. Absolutely shocking. This decolonization stuff, we really need to expose. And I always, I always think, what do these people think is going to happen to them? It's always like Ivy League people in the most privileged circumstances. They can afford to say decolonize because it won't really affect them. They'll be affected last. But what they're actually calling for is the elimination of their way of life and their whole family. Because there was, a, there was, a, there was an Australian girl on who lives of TikTok picked up, which was just a sort of classic example. She was like, what did you think decolonization meant within an Australian accent? And then she said, and look, and by the way, guys, I realize as a, as a Australian, in white Australian, I am a colonizer. I was like, oh, you do realize that. So why do you think you'll be spared when they come for you? You won't be raped and killed because you've read Franz Fanon. You know what I mean? It's like they'll do a little check and like, oh, check your views and you've read the right books. No, you're part of the Western evil. So you, you acknowledge that, but you're still in favor of it. I mean, what is wrong with these people? Well, yeah, there, there was a similar point. Um, we republished a cartoon in our um, uh, in the Daily Skeptic update on our socials, the thing we do every morning, and it was a cartoon of um, a group um, a group uh, of white people festooned in Palestinian flags, holding up uh, placards saying LGBTQ plus for Palestine, and they were literally in the process of being pushed off the wall of a very high building by some mullahs. <laughs> well, speaking of cartoons, should we get onto this Steve Bell story? So um, Steve Bell sacked by Guardian in anti-Semitism row over Netanyahu cartoon. So Steve Bell had been at the Guardian 40 years, put out this cartoon of Netanyahu, and it had a pound of flesh written on it. And this was thought to be an anti-Semitic trope going back to Shakespeare's Merchant of Venice and Shylock. But actually what Bell had intended was a, a 60s cartoon reference of, of Lyndon Baines Johnson. And he even put a little... I think a little squiggle, a little um, note on it, referencing that in the piece so that you definitely knew it was that. It was some sort of mention of, of LBJ or the, in the original cartoon. But nonetheless, he was sacked. And you get, it's very brutal cancel culture because it's, it, the Guardian says Steve Bell's cartoons have been an important part of the Guardian, have been an important part of the Guardian over the past 40 years. We thank him and wish him all the best. So like 40 years of work and you're gone. Now, of course, I hate the Guardian. And it's not like I like Steve Bell's cartoons. He did that awful cartoon of Pretty Patel. And I just tend to think there's a bad vibe about his cartoons and I don't like them. But that's not a reason to get sacked, Toby. Yeah, I agree. Um, And actually, I think you can say more in mitigation of Steve Bell than you just did because it didn't have a pound of flesh written on the cartoon. Had it done so, then it would have been unambiguously anti-Semitic. It was, um, I think, I'm looking at it now. It's it's Netanyahu uh, with boxing gloves on about to cut out a Gaza-shaped segment from his own stomach. And he's saying, residents of Gaza, get out now. And uh, But it does also say, after David Levine, I don't know if that's how you pronounce it, Levine, Levine. Um, and uh, he's another cartoonist who, as you said, um, uh, produced this famous cartoon uh, in the Vietnam era of LBJ um, about to take a scalpel to his own stomach to cut out a Vietnam-shaped uh, uh, area. Um, so uh, people have said it's a reference to uh, uh, a pound of flesh and the right, um, yeah. uh, anti-Semitic caricature of Shylock in the Merchant of Venice. But I think it's, um, I think it's, it, it, I think that's a bit of a stretch, to be honest. Um, uh, I mean, first of all, he explicitly references the David 
Levine cartoon uh, that it's a that inspired it. Um, and and secondly, you know, um, Shylock didn't um, cut a wasn't threatening to cut a pound of flesh out of his own stomach. It was Antonio um, uh, who would have had to forfeit a pound of flesh if he couldn't pay back the money Shylock lent him. And also yes, the area, yeah, and also the the area of um, his stomach that Netanyahu in the cartoon is about to cut up looks like it would weigh considerably more than a pound. So I think you know, give Steve Bell the benefit of the doubt here. That wasn't a straightforwardly anti-Semitic cartoon, and certainly um, uh, no worse. In fact, probably a lot less anti-Semitic than than some other things he's done. So yeah, it did seem to me that was just the Guardian kind of getting all defensive and kind of frightened that it's going to be accused of, you know not doing enough to condemn what happened the Saturday before last. Probably not the best defence that he's done way worse cartoons than this, <laughs> way more anti-Semitic. Well, Check out these five. But right. uh, yeah, I see your point. When you look at it in that context, it, yeah, it, was, it wasn't the pound of flesh thing at all. As you say, it was just a reference to an earlier cartoon. Go on. Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, people say, yeah, but he had form. You know, this was, uh, he may have been on a final warning. Um, uh, this was, uh, you know, the straw that broke the guardians back but yeah i i don't i, I think um i think you know we ought to defend freedom of expression even hard cases like this um because you know freedom of expression is one of the values that we're defending one of the things that hamas and its islamist uh, allies um uh, including iran um uh, want to destroy about the west you know and if we're going to defend freedom of expression and defend the um, cartoons depicting Mohammed that appeared in the Danish press and in um, in 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 France. Then um, I don't think we we should say that uh, anyone doing something that some people regard as anti-Semitic should immediately lose their livelihood. Well, James had a take replying to your tweet or ex post. He said, "How about not sacking?" This is James Delaporte. How about not sacking any cartoonists at all, ever, even if they are tasteless and wrong? What is this bollocks where freedom of expression depends on context? tone, nuance and history and special pleading. Free speech is either free or it's not. What do you think to that? Well, I think um, I think uh, I think I'd agree with him. I think the I mean, I think the the, the standard should be the one um, set out by the US Supreme Court, which is that speech should be permitted unless it's likely to lead to imminent uh, lawless violence. It's a slightly circular definition because it depends what you know lawless, but um, uh, but nevertheless, I think that's a pretty good definition. If if it's not going to lead to imminent violence, then it should be permitted in an ideal world. Yeah, I'd agree with James on that. And who was their previous anti-Semitic cartoon scandal? When when your mate got sacked in the for a previous cartoon that was called anti-Semitic, do you remember that? It wasn't long ago. Do you remember? Uh, yes, yes, that's right. He, I don't think he. I don't think was he fired. Um, what's he called again? Martin Rosen. Yeah, I also defended him. Yeah, I'm just trying to check because it seems that there are a lot of these. And again, it seems it seems the the line is always anti-Semitism, which is which is okay. But it's like the only thing that bothers me about it is we're allowed to sort of do all kinds of other things, but then suddenly anti-Semitism is the is this the one issue where what what some conservatives have been a bit bothered about is it's the one issue where we can do things like if we can, for example, deport people. For celebrating Hamas, and why couldn't we defend, deport all kinds of other people? Some people cited the Rotherham grooming gangs and others. So it is interesting that only on this matter, or as Melissa Chen said, why is it funding is only taken now? If we can do these things, why aren't we doing them 
earlier. But yeah, I can't find much about the earlier one. Someone can write in and tell us well, I'm getting details wrong, but they, there was a definitely a similar scandal recently. Yeah, well, no, I mean, I think uh, it's certainly true. Well, I think surely the, the, the opposite is the case. I mean, Preeti Patel um, may have tweeted, sorry, not Preeti Patel, um, uh, Suella Braverman may have tweeted that the police are coming for you to the kind of pro-Hamas protesters, but the police haven't come for any of them yet. Um, I mean, up to up until quite a, a late point during that, March last was it last Saturday? The only person to be arrested was someone waving a Union Jack. Um, so if it's true that um, the authorities are less tolerant of anti-Semitism than they are of other supposed expressions of hatred and racism, um, we haven't we certainly haven't seen that yet. No evidence of that yet. I mean, people like Douglas Murray may be calling for non-Britons protesting in favour of Hamas to be deported. Um, uh, uh, from Britain, um, but no one's been deported yet, and I don't suppose anyone will be. And if they tried, they'd probably fail um, when it was challenged in the European Court of Human Rights. Um, so, you know, it, it, it may be that um, some people want um, to um, uh, hold, um, to be less tolerant of anti Semitism than other forms of racism, bigotry, hatred. But so far, the authorities have actually been the opposite. Yeah, exactly. So far, it's just another thing Swella Bradman's saying that it sounds okay, but probably won't happen. Toby, we're coming up to an hour. Do you want to do our first ad quickly? Yeah, let's do that. Um, so um, this is an ad from our good friend, Thor Holt, and it's a new one. Uh, let's just see. Yep. Uh, this is a personal note from Thor. Oscar Wilde once said, an idea that is not dangerous is unworthy of being called an idea at all. Perhaps it's dangerous to admit, but the idea of my podcast sponsorship adverts is not to sell you anything. After all, I'm something of a pitching and selling expert, as recognised by MIT and many other commercial clients. Why pay to advertise here then? I love feedback. Number one, I love feedback. E.g. Thor, I'm not 100% sure exactly what you might do for me, but I enjoy your sceptic podcast adverts and find them both interesting and entertaining. Number two, I support Toby, Nick, Will, and indeed Jordan in order to create ground level connection with my fellow skeptics. Because you see, commercial projects find me in many ways, trusted introductions, previous client recommendations, and I also enjoy plenty of repeat business. But it's truly a pleasure to connect with fresh free thinkers. So if that's you, send me a message, say hello. You can contact me, Thor, at on WhatsApp at plus four four oh seven nine oh six three two one five nine three. That's oh seven nine oh six three two one five nine three or LinkedIn.com slash in slash Thor Holt. And do please let me know what you think of my brainstorms with Dapper Laughs and Tom Slade Tom Stade on Thor's Hippie Hut Hippie Hut podcast. And that's hippie spelled H I P P I. Thank you, Thor. That's interesting you got Tom Stade on. I did uh, two national tours supporting Tom Stade. Back in my comedy days, he's a brilliant comedian and very interesting guy. We ended up at the guitarist from uh, Snow Patrol's house. I remember singing Tom Petty and playing guitar with uh, the guitarist from Snow Patrol. And we also, and I think the basis from Kaiser Chiefs came to his is because it was always like sort of the not the not the mo, not the, like the second most famous person from sort of fairly famous bands. You know, what I mean? like the bassist from Kaiser Chief, the guitarist from Snow Patrol. But yeah, Tom's a cool guy, so it's good that Thor's managed to get him on his show. Um, all right, 
Well, I think probably now we should go over to Will. I think should we do that, Toby? Unless yeah. you're desperate to do any more stories, we've got to get him Pete woke, and it's your birthday, and you've got to go. So let's go over to Will with our top stories of the week. So I'm here with Will Jones with some of our biggest stories of the week. Will, we had some good news from Down Under this week. Two bits of good news, in fact. Yeah, amazing news. We have Jacinda Ardern's Labour Party being kicked out in spectacular fashion down in New Zealand, where her party lost the election. We know that they've been sliding in the polls for some time. We know she quit almost in disgrace. I mean, that's probably a bit uh, a bit strong, but she was she did not go out on a high, that's for sure. And she is uh, oh, she said that she was leaving because she was had nothing left in the tank. Uh, this was some time ago. She handed over the reins to Chris. Hipkins, and he did not manage to turn things around. The party kept on going down and and really plummeted and really lost badly in the election that's just happened. And this is being blamed on lots of things. uh, But uh, for Weekly Skeptic uh, listeners, uh, they will be uh, pleased to know that they included uh, a rejection of her net zero policies, which are harming the country's farmers. We've seen that uh, internationally, of course. Uh, And of course, uh, her draconian lockdowns and also uh, the Telegraph mentions in its coverage uh, the, the reduction of popularity because of the vaccine mandates, the really harsh lockdowns, and also just for, for months, for years, banning New Zealanders who are abroad from coming home to their families. I mean, in- incredible, absurd policies, uh, really, really turning the the, the nation, uh, turning the into a, into an island, a prison island, if you like. Uh, not letting people in or out and families not being able to be reunited for years. So all these things uh, took their toll and really fell, yeah, re- really fell victim to that. So that was that's a great verdict of the Kiwis on three years of being governed by Jacinda Ardern. Fantastic news. Let's hope the National Party does a better job. Uh, and also in Australia, the voice in Parliament referendum was lost by the yes side and won by the no side. Yes, and more good news from Down Under. This is this was a, a very woke policy, uh, very much based in identity politics. This was the idea of giving special treatment, special recognition to the Aborigines, the indigenous population of, um, of Australia, giving them a constitutionally obligatory consultative body in Parliament, uh, basically giving them an official opportunity to pronounce judgment on all on all measures going through Parliament. So the the activists could really push their agenda, and this was uh, this was roundly defeated by around 60%, I believe, to 40%. So a really, a really resounding loss. And this was despite being backed by the government, by all the media, by all, all the celebrities, you know, any, anyone who was anyone. It was the fashionable view to, to support this policy, this change, uh, this constitutional change. And, and it went down in flames and it was rejected. And it wasn't just rejected by, by white Australians or non-Indigenous Australians. It was, it was also rejected by a large number, not a majority, but by a large number of uh, Aborigines themselves, who, um, and many of them, in the no campaign saying they didn't want this special treatment and rejecting identity politics so yet again we see uh, we see a fashionable view and identity politics a woke view being being rejected when the population or when the public are actually asked uh, for their views on it and a real a real one in the eye for the uh, for the establishment there yeah fantastic news australia's brexit moment as it's been described um and um uh, let's hope that the next head to roll um, not literally, of course, will be that of Sadiq Khan in the uh, uh, London mayoral election next year. Um, so the next piece you wanted to talk about was um, a piece by Guy de la Bédière. Is that how you pronounce his name? Um, uh, he, he, he wrote a piece um, partly drawing attention to um, another piece by Michael Kelly in The Telegraph about the 
astronomical cost as well as the completely impractical nature of achieving net zero by 2050. Michael Kelly's uh, an emeritus professor of engineering at Cambridge, and he wrote a really devastating piece, I thought, in The Telegraph about the ludicrous pie-in-the-sky thinking of the people behind the net zero policy. Yeah, this was this is a great piece from Guy. Guy uh, asked us to imagine uh, what it would be like if we actually achieved our net zero 2050, if we actually got there, what, what life would actually be like in the UK having having achieved it. And of course, it would be, it would be much poorer and more miserable. But he also pointed out um, how it would be completely fruitless, how it would achieve nothing. Even if you accept that the mainstream theory about the climate and carbon dioxide and temperature, our achieving that would, it would make no doubt at all a completely trivial impact on that and that's even if you accept that mainstream theory which as we know from environment editor chris morrison's uh, many articles that is very very much in question so guy wrote this, that article for us brilliant article well worth uh, looking up and reading and he was uh, inspired to write uh, write that by this as you say fabulous article in the telegraph by cambridge's professor michael kelly who said that the idea and this is a brilliant quote the idea that net zero can be achieved on current timelines by any means short of a command economy combined with a drastic decline in standards of living and several unlikely technological miracles is, he says, a blatant falsehood. And he says that is um, that people need to know the realities of net zero. That's the, the theme of his piece. And, is, and isn't that right? And we need more voices, learned experts like Professor Michael Kelly, people who really know what they're talking about, to stick their heads up the parapet and point out the emperor really has no clothes at all on this. Yeah. And the, the, the usual reply when experts like Michael Kelly tot up the astronomical cost of trying to achieve net zero by 2050, in which they point out how completely unrealistic this is. And they they list all the incredibly implausible assumptions you'd have to make in order to get anywhere near achieving it. The usual response of the kind of net zero fantasist is to say, well, something will turn up. We'll invent a technology which will do for all our energy needs, but won't emit any carbon. And it, it's it's just pure fantasy uh, and a, a ludicrous basis um, for a public policy. Anyway, um, the last story you're going to talk about, Will, is this um, rather surprising or perhaps not that surprising revelation from um, the WhatsApp messages that Dominic Cummings has handed over to the COVID inquiry. Yeah, so this is uh, the, the revelation, if you can call it that, that Simon Case, the Cabinet Secretary, and Dominic uh, Cummings and others in number 10, Lee Kane, Director of Communications, that they were all privately messaging to each other on, on WhatsApp that Carrie Johnson, they believed, was in fact the person in charge of the lockdown policy and all that was going on with what Boris was saying on COVID. So very frank uh, messages. It's always wonderful, I think, to see the private messages that people write when they don't think that they're going to be read by other people, because then you really get, get a glimpse of what they what they really think, and which you so often see in public life and and we see that the lee kane says sigh uh, what wtf are we talking about and simon case says whatever carrie cares about i guess and lee kane says quite they clearly have this uh, this is assumed among them and dominic comes back saying this is all c this is all carrie and then simon case uh, says uh, very frankly i was always told that dom was the secret pm how wrong they are I look forward to telling select committee tomorrow. Oh, fuck no. Don't worry about Dom. The real person in charge is Carrie. And Dom says, oh, true. <laughs> Although that gets him off, of course. Great, great stuff. Um, but of course, it raises the question, well, when will Baroness Hallett demand to see Carrie's text messages and WhatsApp messages? Because if she's the person who's really in charge, then I think the COVID inquiry 
has a right to look at them. Um, uh, but um, as 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 we as we as we've said, not remotely surprising. And but it's great um, material for me and Isabel Oakshot to incorporate in our next performance of the Lockdown Files. We're doing two performances over Christmas at the Hippodrome, in which um, it was originally a couple of actors reading out messages between Boris and Matt Hancock and others playing Boris and Matt and all the other parts. But we'll be able to now. Add, add to that wealth already, that cornucopia of material with these exchanges about Carrie and in due course, hopefully, Carrie's WhatsApp messages too. So much to look forward to there. Oh, brilliant. That sounds, that sounds great, Toby. And, um, and what do you think? I, I want to ask you this. What do you think about this idea of Carrie being in charge? I know you've, you've always been surprised and disappointed about Boris's performance in the pandemic, that this libertarian that you knew uh, suddenly became such a nanny statist and started bossing everyone around and shutting everything down. Do you think that it's the idea that it was Carrie uh, was behind it? Do you think that's, that could answer that question? Well, I, I wouldn't be surprised if um, one of the people leaning on Boris to do a reverse ferret and lock us all down on March 23rd was Carrie. I imagine she was in league with Dominic Cummings and Matt Hancock um, uh, trying to, and Michael Gove, trying to persuade Boris to change his mind. Um, uh, so, yeah, I, I, not remotely surprised. By the way, I don't know if I told you, but I bumped into Boris um, not so long ago. Um, and um, and we had an exchange, um, it, it, which left me thinking that he did regret at least the second and third lockdown, if not the first. So that was, um, I, I was pleased, pleased to learn that. Excellent. If only he'd regretted it more at the time, but... Uh, yes. In advance. <laughs> Okay, well, thank you very much, Will Jones, with our top stories of the week. Great. Thanks, Toby. All right, that was Will. Now let's go to everyone's favourite section. It's Peak Woke. So I'm not sure. The episode might be slightly shorter today, Toby, because you've got to go out for your birthday. But I've got quite a few Peak Wokes to bash through. The most obvious one was Dylan Mulvaney. So the male has... Campaigner's fury as transgender influencer Dylan Mulvaney wins Attitude Magazine's Woman of the Year as critics accuse awards of gaslighting women everywhere, which I think is fair to say. And Babylon B had a funny thing where they gave Dylan Mulvaney their Man of the Year, uh, which is what we believe on this podcast. Although under Labour, that could put us in jail for two years. I don't know if you saw that story, but Labour were proposing misgendering could potentially get you up to two years in prison. And this is why I always say, remember, a Labour government will be much, much worse. Doesn't matter, you know, if the Tories are awful, Labour can still be worse. Deliberately calling someone by the wrong gender pronouns may land you in jail for two years under Labour. That was in the mail as well. So Dylan Mulvaney, Woman of the Year. I try to explain on Headline, there's a very complicated point on this made by Will Noland on my podcast, The Current Thing. He was sacked from Eaton, very interesting guy. And I couldn't make it because as soon as I started saying it, a loud video came over my point and just... And then when I started to explain it again, the video volume went up again. It's as if someone in the GB gallery was messing with me deliberately. I do sometimes wonder. But the interesting about this, Toby, is that people like Maya Forstatter have hit, hit out against it, calling it misogynist. But I've always thought that the trans movement came from feminism. I just don't believe it's suddenly this misogynist movement. I believe it's far more likely it comes from the same kind of thinking. And Will Nolan confirmed that on my podcast. He said, yeah, absolutely, it does. It comes from the idea that women can be like men. They can be in the army. They can be... CEOs, and all that. they're just trying to be like men. So it's inevitable that one day they'd say, well, women can be men. But the only thing, but the thing he added that I'd never heard before was that um, you get all these feminist campaigners saying, well, it's misogynist, therefore, the trans movement. But the part that Will added that I'd never heard before was that feminism is misogynist, 
which is an interesting idea. He's like, feminism just says that women should be like men. So feminism itself is misogynist. So that was quite interesting because basically my point overall is that the Maya Forstater type people, even though I'm on their side in many ways, they think the solution is more feminism and that this is a misogynist attack, the trans stuff, the Dylan Mulvaney stuff. Whereas actually, I think the solution is less feminism and that's actually the root of all of it. Anyway, bit of a long point. Yeah. What do you think? Well, um, interesting that you should mention, I think it was, was it um, Annalisa Dodds who said that under Labour, it would be a hate crime to what misgender someone or something along those lines. Um, I think what she's talking about there is um, following the recommendations of the Law Commission of England and Wales. So a few years ago, they had a consultation. Uh, It was around the time that um, the Hate Crime and Public Order Scotland bill was being debated north of the border. And as you know, that eventually passed, got royal assent in 2021, and is going to be activated next year, we now know. Um, But the Law Commission of England and Wales was recommending that the Westminster Parliament pass a hate crime and public order, open brackets, England and Wales, close brackets, act. And one of the things they wanted to do was extend the number of things you can be prosecuted, uh, the number of protected characteristics you can be prosecuted for stirring up hatred against. So at the moment, it's just uh, race, religion, sexual orientation, and they wanted to extend it to include transgender status. So presumably, if you misgendered a trans person, that would count as stirring up hatred against a trans person. um, And that would be um, punishable by two years in jail. Um, The Free Speech Union lobbied against the British government introducing a bill of that nature. And um, amongst others, and uh, they decided not to. But that's, I think, what Labour are intending to do. The only bit of the the only bit of the Law Commission's recommendations in that report, which did survive for a bit, was something called the um, Harmful Communications Offence. And the Harmful Communications Offence, the Law Commission proposed, should replace um, uh, the Malicious Communications Act and Section 127 of the Communications Act, which was um, uh, what that was that that was the um, law that uh, Count Dacula was prosecuted for breaking. Uh, that prohibits being grossly offensive. Um, and they were going to be replaced by a Harmful Communications Act, whereby if you said something that caused someone serious distress, you could, if other tests were met, um, go to jail for two years. And that was that was initially in the online safety bill, but the Free Speech Union lobbied very hard against that and uh, managed to get that taken out. But that, I'm sure, will be brought in by the next Labour government too, just one, one of many things they're going to do to uh, undermine free speech. Yeah, and we'd be in trouble on this podcast because we constantly correct. I mean, you've been in trouble for calling people like Dylan Mulvaney a woman when really you're just confused and people think you're <laughs> doing it on purpose. But uh, then I, I've always said, no, no, he and a man. So I would go, I would go to jail. You might, yeah, yeah. We'll Pretty have to disturbing. We'll have to think of a a way of getting around it, um, of 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 making it clear that we're not using we're not being we're not we're not we're not being compelled to speak about them in a particular way oh i suppose we would be compelled albeit in not quite the way they want us to speak about them anyway we'd be compelled at the force of law we just have to go she she like in a sarcastic way (laughs) would that be enough to get if you you, do you think if you went she and did air quotes around it and you were talking to someone or talking about it on gb news that would be a criminal offense just the air yeah good question and if it's on audio if people if it's a podcast like this it's audio only at the moment and we go she but we're doing air quotes but they can't see them 
is that still a, a microaggression? Yeah, I mean, how would we actually talk about that particular story? Dylan Mulvaney being named Woman of the Year. What is it by attitude? We, yeah, we, we just we, have to say, which is absolutely beautiful and, and obviously and appropriate because it's obviously a woman. <laughs> we would have no other, it wouldn't even make sense yeah, as a story. Oddly, it has caused some controversy, but we've no idea why. Because <laughs> she is, of course, a woman. <laughs> and we can't say why until we uh, step out of the, the, the borders of the UK. Like, like, we think if you like get like on the Eurotunnel, like halfway to... Is there a certain point where well, you can suddenly misgender Dylan Mulvaney? Well, interestingly, um, let's suppose this government had followed the recommendations of the Law Commission of England and Wales and introduced this uh, and it had become law. We could, I think, still go to Scotland now because um, the Scottish Hate Crime Public Order Act hasn't been activated yet. So we could go up and talk about why it's a little bit odd that Attitude have made Dylan Mulvaney Woman of the Year in Scotland. Um, but we shouldn't be able to do right. it in England and Wales. So we step off the train in like Edinburgh or something. We just go, it's a man. And then we just get back on the train. I think, I think that, that even after the next Labour government has passed this draconian anti-free speech law, we'd still be able to go to Northern Ireland and discuss Dylan Mulvaney. Right. There. It's a bloody man. It's obvious. <laughs> Dylan Mulvaney is a man. And then get back on the plate. <laughs> I suppose, I suppose it's where I'm from and at the border is Carlisle. So you know, where's the exact point when you can step into Scotland? Could you have one foot? Yeah. Could you like have your left legs able to call Dylan Mulvaney a man? You, you lean That's over right. the border. That would be that would be, that'd be actually a, a great way of, of sort of staging a protest, wouldn't it? We could kind of do the podcast on the border. We could step over into Scotland when we're saying things that are no longer permitted in the UK and then step, sorry, in England and Wales, then step back into, um, yeah, it would be like a pirate radio station. We, call, we could call this great. podcast Straddling the Border. <laughs> <laughs> but it is shocking I mean, people people really need to wake up to it they won't of course they'll be like oh Steve Starmer's going to manage the economy but of course Labour is going to be an absolute dystopian nightmare it's all he didn't even mention immigration in this five point thing the other day he's got no policies all he's doing is carrying the Ming bars as people have said trying not to drop it And he, but then when he gets in he's going to do all these radical things and I still believe Starmer's more radical than people think he's a Pabloite used to edit this social alter, socialist alternative magazine and they're just going to go full woke. It's going to be absolutely horrific. Yeah. Toby, what's your peak woke? So um, I've got, like you, quite a few. Uh, black female James Bond supposedly will uh, boost MI6 diversity, I think the head of MI6 has said. It's like, wow. Yeah, that's <laughs> doesn't really require much comment. So a bad um, thing will cause another bad thing to happen. It's like, um, yeah. Um, bad you really think you, you, second you, bad thing. You really think that if any part of our state apparatus should be immune of the kind of decolonizing equity diversity and inclusion nonsense um it should be mi6 you know um surely they of all organizations should be meritocratic about whom they hire they really do want the smartest people and if they happen to be a black trans lesbian fine but they shouldn't have quotas or deliberately try and make diversity hires. I mean, that's that that way ruin lies. Yeah, anything that involves defence, nuclear weapons or flying a plane, I tend to think, let's get the best people Car uh, and surgery. Carry on. I, probably the, the, the most heinous peak woke, though, um, uh, I came across last week was, you must have seen this, um, it was a story on Guido Fawkes. Lloyd's Bank offered its 30,000 staff um, paid Bupa counselling if any of them were triggered by the trans, the transphobic rhetoric fueling hate at the wait for it 
Conservative Party conference. So um, the, uh, I think, he- head of human resources at Lloyd's um, uh, uh, offered counselling to all 30,000 members of staff in case they were traumatised, made to feel unsafe by the anti-trans rhetoric uh, coming out of the Prime Minister's mouth, Kemi Badenoch's mouth, Suella Braverman's mouth at the Conservative Party conference. I mean, you couldn't make it up. Yeah, absolutely. I did see that one. Absolutely shocking. The other one I'm going to go for is this Bromley Met Police who put out a tweet or post yesterday saying, what is a disability hate crime? A hate crime is any criminal offence that is motivated by hostility slash prejudice based upon the victim's disability or perceived disability. For example, if a person calls someone who is blind a horrible name, then that is a hate crime. As many people pointed out immediately, that's not a hate crime. They don't seem to actually know their own laws very well. But the other hilarious thing was a picture, which was basically a sort of Muslim person with a like a veil with one hook leg. It was literally a hook. I, so I just wrote, no, it is not. Also, you've drawn Abu Hamza wrong because it just looked like Abu Hamza. You remember Abu Hamza with the hook for the hand? Yeah. But their drawing had a hook for a leg. Yeah, you'd think anyone who did this drawing of, you know, a typical disabled Asian woman and made her look like Abu Hamza with a hook at the end of her leg rather than at the end of her arm, you'd think, well, that's a hate crime, isn't it? I mean, it looks like, a you know, a hateful depiction of a Muslim woman. Hate drawing. Yeah. Yeah, it's worse than anything Steve Bell's ever done. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's like, I just thought, what's Abu Hamza up to these days? Apparently he's in some... Uh, He's in some maximum security prison in Colorado or something. He, he was complaining about co- he was too ill to be in solitary because of COVID. But yeah, I mean, it's not a good look, is it? I mean, basically, you couldn't you couldn't go up to hook Abu Hamza in Bromley and say, "What was that hook all about, Abu?" Or whatever. <laughs> you couldn't. He'd be protected. But it, but it's not. It's a non-crime hate incident, isn't it, Toby? If anything, uh, at the very least. But uh, you may be surprised to learn, Nick, that I don't think the police have ever recorded an NCHI against a member of the police. Um, some I think uh, Harry Miller did a, an FOI to all the police forces in England and Wales couldn't find a single example of an NCHI being recorded against a police officer so apparently they've just eliminated hatred from, from the police um, but uh, it, I'm slightly puzzled by this I mean as you say um, calling someone who is blind a horrible name um, isn't a hate crime because it's not a crime so it can't be a hate crime um, but no. um uh, what if you just called them a dickhead and it was nothing to do with their disability? Yeah. I mean, and, and what is, what, and like, it's an odd one to pick, isn't it? I mean, what is a horrible name for a blind person? I can't think of a kind of, you know, an unacceptable epithet to use about a blind person. Can you, I mean, blindy. <laughs> yeah, you blind not, does. not. Yeah, Always oh, blinky. Yeah, I mean, what, would it, what would it be? Yeah, yeah. And you could call him a dick. What if you call him a dickhead? And it's like, well, it's not a hate crime, I just think he is. But if you say you blind dickhead, then that becomes a hate crime, I guess. Yeah. I mean, it's one thing we were, when we were, when the Free Speech Union was campaigning against the Worker Protection Bill, which would have extended um, the uh, obligation on employers to stop their staff being harassed. At the moment, that just extends to employee to employee harassment. But the, 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 the workers protection, Worker Protection Bill would have extended it to third party harassment. So the example we always gave was if a partially cited steward at a football ground, sorry, a partially sighted linesman made a bad line call at a football ground and one of the supporters in the stadium, packed with 30,000 people, shouted out, Oi, Lino, are you blind? He, the linesman could then sue the football club for not doing enough to protect him from being harassed on the basis of his protected characteristic by a third party, i.e. one of the fans in the stadium. Yes. Um, but... And the referees are wanker is, is, is problematic because if they're trans, because we discovered the other day that you can't call a trans 
woman a wanker. That's true. But uh, can you, can, could you call her, could you go, Lino, Lino, you're a C word? Would that be okay? Because even though yes. it, it, it is an expression of hatred, it's not an expression of hatred based on the linesman's protected characteristics. Yeah, that would be encouraged, actually. Um, shall I... <laughs> Don't call him Stevie Wonder. That's a hate crime. But call him yeah, a C word. Called... That's fine. <laughs> That's just freedom of expression. Yeah. <laughs> Did you see this one in the LA Times? Researchers say that LA's bird species are remarkably segregated. In a new study, they argue that the difference in bird populations is a lasting consequence of racist home lending practices from decades ago, as well as modern wealth disparities. So racist birds, Toby. Yeah, who would have thought it? Um, I, for a sec, when I saw the headline, I thought they were talking about Twitter. Um, but yeah, um, just, just it's like, it reminds me of that story that Petter put out about how... Um, uh, we eating meat um, was somehow um, misogynistic um, because it was mainly the females of the species that we were eating. I mean, it's and we need to protect animals from misogyny. But what about you know being raped by other animals? What about that? Apparently, they're not concerned about that. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, did you? Also, I've got loads of just two more quickly. Men's health use the phrase "penis owners." You see, what's happened to Men's Health magazine? It used to be about like blokes being, you know, being men, and well, obviously, probably taking steroids and getting a really good photo. But then um, they couldn't they couldn't say men. So they said for a person with a penis, and then later on they used the phrase "penis owners of all ages." <laughs> I mean, that's incredible. If Men's Health can't say, is it? Are they going to change the name to "penis holders"? health penis owners monthly it makes me it makes me think of someone who you know collects pickled penises in a jar you know in their woodshed like a serial killer do you know many people like that i'll go and show you my collection next time you come around nick penis owners health um you could do a little piece for them um and the last one i'm going to do is clemson university students march on campus after tampons were quietly removed from the men's bathroom so the republican became aware of this April Cromer, South Carolina House of Representatives, became aware of this and, and obviously taught to this uh, Clemson University. And then they got rid of this dispenser that was in the, the male toilet. It says quietly taken away. It, can you take away a dispensary quietly? You've got to have a very good screwdriver. But then this was protested against by students. Imagine protesting for the right for the men's toilet to have tampons. You've really jumped the shot there, haven't you? And that's, that is peak woke. Yeah, that is that's. That, I've got one more as well, which is um, you see this uh, this troop of Morris men in Brighton. Um, they've uh, they were called the Brighton Morris men, but they've dropped the word men because they think that's not trans inclusive enough. So they're just now called uh, Brighton Morris, um, but um, they still exclude women. So it's still a single sex organization, but they just drop the and- men the word men from their name. So does that mean that, you know, um, uh, now they sound like a law firm, (laughs) Brighton Morris (laughs) tackling your mortgage concerns. But maybe maybe this will be a cunning ruse for, you know, the Garrett club to avoid being forced to admit women. It will just no longer describe itself as a, you know, a men's club or a men only club. Uh, So it can claim to be trans inclusive, but just won't admit women and that'll be fine. Yeah. I hate that the the Garrett club, like the women are constantly trying to get it. Just let us have our spaces. Stop trying to get into our clubs. Just a general <laughs> call to women at the end of the podcast. <laughs> leave, leave us alone. Well, I, I, Toby's I, a member of loads of men's only clubs. I would, I would, I would put that a slightly different way, which is um, I would absolutely respect the right of women 
to create women's only spaces, whether they be domestic refuges, uh, changing rooms, um, even some swimming pools at particular times. Perfectly respect that. So I therefore expect women to also respect men who want to create men-only spaces. You can't have it one way, not the other. Absolutely. Women-only spaces, which you absolutely need because it's dangerous, obviously, for men to get into them. And men-only spaces, so we can chat about the football and openly express our real views about women. <laughs> I just thought I'd throw that in at the end there. Toby's got to go. It's his birthday. He's, uh, he's, he's got, we've got loads of stuff to do on his birthday. But uh, we quickly could get in a couple of reviews. So let's quickly go to review the reviews. And Toby, there was one on it's a couple about your takes on American politics. Toby thinks that if Trump were in the White House, it's only possible Russia wouldn't have invaded Ukraine. But there's a chance that after the Hamas terror attacks, Trump might have started a war with Iran. And then they say something quite mean and ask if you're paid. Though they do give us five stars. And there was another one exactly like that. So people are a bit down on your Trump take, Toby. Are you suffering from a touch of Trump derangement syndrome in your old age? Well, I thought, um, but, but, but my Trump take was that because Trump's so unpredictable and obviously insane, um, that might have deterred um, Putin from invading the Ukraine. It might, Ukraine, it might also have deterred Iran ordering Hamas to carry out um, the atrocities two Saturdays ago. Um, so but then your um, follow-up so, take was, if, if something did actually happen, Trump might be worse if it did kick that's off, true. if they didn't. That's true. Yeah. It would be, he, 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 he's a great, he, he's a good deterrent. Um, but um, quite um, for that very reason, a bit of a risk in case he doesn't end up deterring Putin or Iran from doing these unspeakable things. Yeah. But someone couldn't believe it. They said, so what you're saying is the only president who hasn't started a war in God knows how many years, the man who ended the war in Afghanistan and made peace with North Korea and had Iran under his thumb, would potentially start a war with Iran if he were in power when Hamas attacked Israel. What the hell is going on with this podcast? So he still gave us five stars. <laughs> but um, but they, they, two people accuse you of being paid opposition. If you are being paid, can I get a, a slice yeah, of that? that sounds, like, sounds like that person's um, suffering from um, Trump bewitchment syndrome. Can I give you one quick more? Weekly must listen, five stars. I recommended one episode of the show to a lefty academic friend. Never do that. And we did a listen along together, exchanging comments. He hated it, but did keep changing his mind about whether he found Nick or Toby more objectionable. He settled on Nick in the end. <laughs> I became worried he might leave a one-star review and it would be my fault. So I hope I'm balancing that out a little with this much-deserved five stars. Like everyone says, interesting, funny, and great chemistry. Stay skeptical. Brilliant from Shank, I can't pronounce her name, but brilliant uh, review there. Very good. Left-wing academics were never going to like the podcast. And someone else says, Wunderbar, a welcome counterbalance to the insanity of the culture wars. Toby's experience and wisdom alongside Nick's wit and candor is a perfect blend. What a nice review. Very good. So leave us a five-star review on the Apple app or wherever you're listening. And please, if you want to support me, go to buymeacoffee.com slash nickdixon. Buy me a digital coffee, leave a comment, and I'll reply. Buymeacoffee.com slash nickdixon. Nickdixon.substack.com is my substack, obviously. And you can also listen to The Current Thing. Just had an episode with Paul Cox from Headliners. We've got loads of great ones coming up. Very interesting one coming up this week with a best-selling author on masculinity. And loads more. Lord Frost, Carl Benjamin, Bloody Bloody Bar, Andrew Doyle. And, of course, Toby... Plug the donations or whatever you want to plug. Yeah, well, I was, I was going to ask a question before I do a bit of plugging, which is, um, as as our listeners will know, if they're regular listeners, Nick and I are shortly going to be launching um, our website. Um, and um, if you pay 
a very modest sum every month, you'll be able to listen, even watch an extended version um, of uh, this podcast, including stuff that um, uh, is perhaps a little bit more risky, if you can imagine such a thing, than we actually say on this podcast. But um, we were also thinking about diversifying into other areas. And I suggested just off the top of my head to Nick, when we when we were spitballing about this, um, maybe we should do a live commentary show, you know, occasionally, not every week, but, you know, when there's a big football match on, um, maybe even a rugby match, um, like, a, you know, a cup final, uh, we could live, live, we could do a live stream of our commentating on it as it was being played. And just be curious to know whether anyone <laughs> thinks that would be of any interest or whether it's the last thing in the world you'd want to watch whilst watching the football or listen to whilst watching yeah, the football. Yeah, interesting. I hate rugby, but maybe that would make it quite interesting. But certainly the football one would be good. Yeah, that's another possibility. We've got loads of ideas. I was almost thinking they should let, suggest a name for it because we do have some name ideas. But then I think we'll just lead to chaos if they suggest names for our new... Well, they could suggest them. Should we idea. tell them the name that we're our working title? I'm not sure we should even tell them. Okay, let's not tell them that. Let's see if they can come up with anything just, better. Yeah. Yeah, name for our new website. Yeah, but that, that might be too vague for them. But um, just it just came into my head. But... um. And perhaps if you're really brilliant at websites, you can still let us know. We've got some really good people. But if you want to throw your hat in, probably still time just about. What's the email, Toby? Uh, it is um, uh, the, the Daily Skeptic. It's, I think the best one is thedailyskeptic at gmail.com. Thedailyskeptic at gmail.com. And don't forget, if you enjoy reading The Daily Skeptic, don't, 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 please do give us a donation. Um, and if you donate five pounds, you get below the line commenting rights. That's a very lively community you'll be part of um and um please join the free speech union if you haven't already uh, www.freespeechunion.org and i also have a substack um a little known substack uh, not as famous as nick's and it's all about being a qpr fan so it makes for quite depressing reading um but uh, <laughs> i'll probably be posting a review of our away game to huddersfield this saturday and you can find it. it's called pride of west london Sounds like a bit of a mis- misnomer now, but nonetheless, that's how we think of ourselves in the QPR stands. Uh, so it's uh, Pride of West London at Substack if you want to access all my reviews of um, or match reports. That'd be a nice birthday present for Toby. So happy birthday to Toby, and until next week, stay sceptical. Stay sceptical. Stay sceptical.